Well, it's been just over a month, of course, since the horrific terror attacks in Israel by Hamas on October 7th. One of the more disturbing things here at home in the immediate aftermath of those attacks was to see those who seemed willing to excuse the attacks, defend the attacks, or even in some cases celebrate the attacks. Uh, That included the Canadian Union of Public Employees and some statements posted by QP leadership, which really almost did seem to be like celebrating or defending these attacks. And that received a a lot of uh, reaction, a lot of pushback. Now some Jewish members of the Canadian Union of Public Employees are are pushing back. Uh, They filed a human rights claim against the union alleging discrimination and anti-Semitism. Joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, one of the complainants in this case, Carrie Silverberg, is a CUPE member from Vaughan, Ontario, and is on the line with us here this afternoon. Carrie, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's just go through, you know, what, what you were experiencing, what you've heard from, from some of your colleagues, just, you know, trying to process what happened on October 7th, then to see some of these statements posted by top officials in, in your own union. Yeah, well... As you can imagine, we all woke up on the Saturday morning and were horrified and sad and, you know, every possible emotion, you know, and trying to process that. And then when the next day, Fred Hahn, who is the president of QP Ontario, who I have known personally for many years, posted a celebration, as you had mentioned, of that terrorist attack without ever mentioning terrorism and without ever mentioning, you know, the innocent victims, but he was celebrating a resistance. Um, Basically, quite honestly, I cried. I was so sad that somebody could celebrate the death of anybody, much less the terroristic way that this happened. You know, the the kidnapping, the torturing, the, you know, like I, I was just so shocked and saddened that this person who I actually know and have socialized with at conventions would, you know, post something so horrific. So many of my colleagues and keeping members that I don't know, uh, you know, we all sort of banded together and, and we were all very, very disturbed by it and felt that something needed to be done, especially because nobody else in QP seemed to be saying, Hey, we don't agree with that, those statements. So to me, staying silent is complicity. So that, to me, tells me that they all agree. So that was pretty right. upsetting. Right. So, so Fred himself, who's uh, vice president of the National CUPE Board, head of CUPE in Ontario, it was the Thanksgiving weekend here, of course. He posted that he was thankful for the power of resistance across the globe. There was... Uh, a post from QP Local, which represents academic workers at McMaster. They posted, Palestine is rising, long lived the resistance. I believe Fred either liked or shared that post. Um, so this is the kind of stuff we're, we're talking about here. And, and so, as you mentioned, there was nothing about uh, the civilians affected here, no denunciation of these kinds of, of terror tactics or terror attacks. I mean, there was, that, was, that was the extent of their commentary, was to basically defend or almost celebrate this. Yes, and that was before Israel even had a chance to react. Right. So it was, it was, it was like, I don't know, I don't know how much worse, you know, you can kick somebody when they're down, so to speak, but it was just horrific. Just, I think, yeah, to, to understand, I mean, you know, for those who are not involved in, 
in, in the labor movement or organized labor or, or public sector unions. I mean, you know, QP exists to represent the members, which includes you and everybody else to ensure you, you're, you're looked after in your job, you're well paid, uh, working conditions, benefits, all of those things. What on earth does weighing in on this situation or, or weighing in on, on terror attacks, what does that have to do with, with the job that the QP and its leadership are even supposed to be doing in the first place? Quite honestly, absolutely nothing. However, if you were to ask Fred Hahn, his, his view, and I don't know if it's QP's view, or is, is that QP Ontario is the political arm of QP. Right. So they have for many years delved into these these uh these these views and about other other places too but i have to say i have been to many conventions over the years and there have no other country has ever been targeted the way israel is and by extension the jewish people uh and i have for many years tried to educate fred and tried to talk to him tried to work with him clearly that fell on deaf ears. That that became it couldn't have become more clear than it did that day. Right. So I, I'm really not sure how they see that that is part of their job because I mean every every level of government has condemned what he said. Yeah. How are, when he goes into bargaining, I'm not sure how they're going to possibly look at him and take him seriously. Well, that's an important point. And I guess the other thing here, there, there's there's some history here, right? This didn't just come out of nowhere, and, and maybe in, in a sad way, perhaps you weren't even surprised to see those remarks that day, you know, despite the magnitude of what had happened. What What's some of the background here that people need to know about these issues and, and what it's meant for, you know, those who are of the Jewish faith in, in this union? Yeah, it's interesting because most people... Most rank-and-file members don't have any idea because unless you go to a convention, which is typically only, you know, executives of each local go, um, you really don't know. So most people don't actually even, like they say, it's a democratic process, but it really isn't because most people don't have a voice and don't even know what's going on. So for all these years that, that I've been going going to these conventions and hearing these um, anti-Israel resolutions, I've I've consistently gone to the mic and spoken and explained that, first of all, typically it's a one-sided, sensationalized media story that they're taking and running with. Typically, there's either complete lies about Israel, misinformation, half-truths, half-stories, or just, you know, like, it's never the full story, and that's what I I keep trying to bring up, Uh, and it, it keeps falling on deaf ears, and each time I've gone to a convention, I have to tell you, I've come home, and it's taken me about two weeks to get over the emotional anguish of listening to this from people that are supposed to be, you know, working, you know, they sign every email in solidarity. Well, I don't feel like they're in solidarity with the Jewish members, and it's really quite hurtful. Well, and that brings us to this complaint, and and I think you know it was an obvious thought that a lot of us had uh, after you know seeing these these posts from from QP leadership. I mean, you know, what must members of this union who are Jewish what must they be thinking? What must they be going through right now? Do they feel like they're safe or protected within this union? So, talk about why you feel you know this this is the way maybe to to address some of these issues. Well, you know, we've been horrified by things he's said for a long time and quite and to be honest i've actually received emails from non-jewish members 
who are equally as horrified and want to take part in this action. So, so, yeah, it's not just Jewish members that feel unsafe by that, because those are pretty, you know, alarming things to say. Uh, But, you know, so, so a bunch of us started talking and it was like, why are we paying union dues to somebody who's spewing this and wants to basically kill our people? So that was it. It started as a how can we get out of how how can we re divert our union dues to a charity of our choice because that was something that we were told could be done, and slowly as more of us got involved and I did more research and spoke to some people and that it, it wasn't that simple to just divert them, and uh, then I connected up with Catherine Marshall, our our, our lawyer, and. Uh, this is discussed as the best route to go. Mm-hmm. I should note the statement that QP released. Uh, it says, our union understands the fundamental importance of human rights, and we take these matters very seriously. We firmly believe there has been no violation of Ontario's human rights code, and in any form, we will be happy to stand on a record of fighting discrimination and oppression in, in all of their forms. So that, that's the statement they've released, and yeah. we'll see how this is adjudicated. But I mean, what, what do you hope can come of all of this? My biggest hope is change. Mm-hmm. Education, you know, if this brings about people understanding that the true history and understand the true um, damage that they're doing by the, the things that they're saying, that will be a huge step in the right direction because then hopefully it will not perpetuate. Um, obviously, I would like, as would the entire group, our union dues to be diverted to the Jewish charity of our choice. We have been spent for however many years. For me, it's been almost 17 years of paying union dues that have, have gone to supporting BDS and other things that we do not, like, that go against our beliefs. I'd like to now be able to take those union dues and have them support things that, that do align with my beliefs. Um, so that that's, you know, those are the most important things, really, education and change, you know, it needs to happen. It needs to happen in a lot of places, but, you know, there is no place for this anywhere in Canada. But on the union floor, where I've told Fred time and time again, I don't feel safe. Other members don't feel safe. We can't, you know, when we try to speak and tell them how we're feeling, we're completely shut down. This is just not okay. And it just needs to stop. Because, again, reading that post, it just drove it home. It was like putting a knife through me. I, I, I literally... I just started to cry. I mean, we were all crying and upset to be with, but that just, that just, it was like putting a knife through me. I, 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 I was just, I, I cried. I just cried and didn't know, you know, sort of where to turn. So I was happy when we were, when we started to bind together and, and figure out, you know, what we could do to put a stop to this hate because it's perpetuating on our streets. Oh, yes. Yes, sadly it is. Well, we'll keep a close eye on, on this. We'll follow it very closely. Uh, in the meantime, Kiria, all the best. Thanks again for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're very optimistic uh, that we will see positive results. It's bold, uh, but it is strategic, and we will see better access for all Albertans. Did you recognize that voice? I was going to say, there was a familiar face at the press conference today. I don't know if that's enough of a familiar voice. But that was Ed Stelmack uh, today. Remember Ed Stelmack? He was uh, the premier. 
And it's worth noting he was the premier when Alberta Health Services was created in 2008. Uh, he's the chair of Covenant Health. He was on hand for the announcement today. And, you know, given that he was premier when AHS was created and he's there now today when AHS is being dismantled, seemed like an obvious question. And he says he supports the government's plan to dismantle the centralized system. So we're going now, you know, we've done a 180 here. Right. So that was the conservative vision in 2008. We're going to take all these local boards, all this scattered bureaucracy. We're going to consolidate it into a, a lean, mean administration machine. Now, 15 years later, I guess the conservative view is to go back towards what we had before. Not exactly what we had before. We're not going to have the regional boards. Were there nine at the time, I think? Uh, but we are now starting to dismantle AHS. So four new organizations are going to take over much of the work of AHS in the areas of acute care, primary care, continuing care, and mental health and addiction. So AHS, and, and maybe the name will change, I guess it will still kind of exist. It will be responsible for basically hospital stuff, hospital surgeries and other acute care services. So this is going to take some time. And uh, we'll start to see all of this next year. The government says health, frontline health jobs will be protected. They say they're still going to be putting more money into the system, uh, but there may be some streamlining of management positions, which will be interesting because we're going from one agency to four. Will that mean fewer managers? I bet maybe. I mean, we'll have to wait and see how all of this works out. It's, it's no secret that uh, healthcare in Alberta has faced a number of pressures and the system's not working as it should. Is that the fault of AHS? Is that the fault of government? I think, you know, AHS has been a convenient scapegoat where the government can take credit for the good things happening in healthcare and blame somebody else for the bad things happening. Ultimately, the government needs to be accountable. But at the same time, uh, how arm's length should the uh, administration of healthcare be from government decisions? I think one of the big issues, certainly one of the big issues in the minds of uh, the current premier was the uh, pandemic response. And I think there's a real belief that we got stuck with restrictions because AHS couldn't expand the capacity of the system. But at the same time, right, I mean, that requires resources. So is that the fault of AHS or the fault of the government? So after all of these changes, and one of the questions that was put to the premier today, uh, should we face uh, an emergency situation again in the future? And I mean, already right now, you know, in, in the big centers, you know, we've got hospitals near capacity as it is. Are we going to be better positioned to, to have that flexibility to add more beds, add surge capacity? We've already begun. I mean, surge capacity was one of the, the big objectives when Dr. John Cowell came in. Uh, I, if I remember my notes correctly, we've increased the amount of acute care beds by 171. And we've also increased the amount of ICU staffed beds by 50. So we're moving in, in the right direction. I suspect the biggest change will come from a facility by facility audit to see how many patients should be in an alternative um, uh, arrangement, either in a long-term care facility or a continuing care facility or at home supported by home care. I think what we have observed is that um, several of our wings of our, our hospital, several wards, several floors have been turned over to, uh, to continuing care provision. And we have a whole variety of alternative care providers who could, uh, who could provide alternative arrangements. So I don't want to prejudge how many um, beds that will be. I, th I think at the, at the moment it had, it had been identified as over 500 individuals who are waiting for placement in long-term care. And it may be more than that. Uh, I also know that there are 
wings of hospitals and floors and operating rooms that have either been de decommissioned or never brought into service. So when the minister talks about optimization, that, that's going to, to, to uh, be the, the challenge of the board is to go through facility by facility and make sure all of the uh, areas are optimized. And then of course we have a, a recruiting uh, task ahead of us. We have to graduate more health professionals to be able to make sure that we're staffed up and recruit more of them from, from abroad. But we, we have to get a better handle on just how much capacity we do have and how much more we can, we can create. But that's the direction we need to go. One of the, the things that Dr. Cowell told me is the problem is if you always are operating at 100%, when you do end up with a patient surge like we do every single respiratory virus season, now you're burning out your staff because you're asking them to operate at 115%. And in the case of COVID, that carried on for over two years. And so we have completely burnt out our frontline staff. The, what we have to do is, is create um, enough of a, a capacity buffer have the, uh, the hospitals operating at 85% so that when a surge comes, they're able to scale up and we're able to create better working conditions. So that's where we're going to is that you can't have your staff running flat out all the time, especially when an unanticipated um, uh, pressures come on the system. And so we, we, we are going to be working on improving that capacity at the hospitals. Okay, so it was the Premier's answer to that. Uh, so what does all of this mean? Is this the right direction? Uh, our next guest uh, argued in a recent op-ed that decentralizing Alberta Health Services is the wrong move. Uh, so what is the concern about these kinds of changes? And what, what if not this, what is needed to address the delivery of health care in Alberta? Uh, Dr. Tom Noseworthy is Professor Emeritus uh, at the uh, University of Calgary was uh, previously the head of the Department of Community Health Sciences, Faculty of Medicine at the U of C, and has worked for a number of years in healthcare and a focus on health policy, received the Order of Canada, has been a hospital administrator, uh, and worked in healthcare for many years. Uh, Dr. Tom Noseworthy joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk about, I guess, what is a, a big day in terms of the future of, of health delivery in Alberta. Dr. Noseworthy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I mean, as we attempt to digest, I guess, first of all, the magnitude of, of this announcement, I mean, in your view, how consequential will this prove to be? Well, you call it a big day. I would call it a very sad day uh, for Albertans' health and health care. This was a phenomenally large announcement, many components in it. Um, and I think we're taking a serious step backwards, unfortunately. Well, why do you say that, first of all? Well... I remember the day 15 years ago where Alberta Health Services was formed. Yeah. It was tumultuous and had a huge impact on many of us. And it's taken almost all that time to kind of get back on the rails and try to make sense of this and make it work. And just as I believe now it's working, with the evidence being three other provinces are now copying this, poof, along we come and we're going to disrupt it again for really, really, really poor quality reasons. Right. So there's certainly the, you know, the disruptive nature of this, first of all. I mean, in terms of what it looks like on the other side, we can get to that. But in the meantime, you know, this dismantling, building up these new organizations, how, how disruptive might that prove to be? Well, it's going to be even as disruptive as it was in 95 when we formed uh, the regions or in 2008 when AHS was formed. I mean, every time, even if it's felt to be necessary that you make a major change in the healthcare delivery system, it has untold consequences, not just on the people providing and administrating the care, but the people that are receiving it. 
So this is going to have a long-term consequence, and it is, it is going to be very disruptive. It seems as though from from the political leadership, maybe AHS has been made out to be a bit of a scapegoat when it comes to the, the problems affecting the delivery of health care in Alberta. But I mean, in your view, when we look at the challenges facing health care in this province, how much blame rests at the feet of, of AHS? There's no question about the fact that AHS is not a perfect organization, but it's an improving organization. And it's uh, it's starting to work the way that I would hope to get more integrated care. And again, as I say, three other provinces now beginning or already copying this model does speak for something. I think, unfortunately, we've seen an enormous blame game this morning, uh, blaming AHS for things that are not even inside of AHS, like, for instance, primary care and community care. That has never been part of AHS, despite the fact that it should have been. So I think that what we're seeing here is a fast-talking, media-savvy smokescreen that simply shifts the blame. I mean, what's the benefit of having a you know a centralized administrator like this when it comes to delivering health care in a province uh, the size of Alberta and a health care system that incorporates so much? Is it advantageous to have a central administrator? Well, um, provided that the voice of local areas in the province can be properly heard, I think there's distinct advantages. We heard the premier falsely say today that we were administratively overburdened in Mm -hmm. Alberta Health Services. Check the facts here. Alberta has the lowest administrative costs in the country, and the number of management layers have been reduced substantially. So that's simply not true. And so the advantage of having a single delivery system, if it works properly without government interference, and I might stress that it's got to be without government interference, is that you can begin to start integrating services across all parts of care, acute care, long-term care, primary care, and so on. Instead now, we're going to have four separate boards, and believe you and me, trying to get something done across all of those boards is going to be particularly difficult and much more difficult than it is right now. Well, and I guess all of those boards, I mean, they're going to have their own management. Are we really getting less administration or less management through these changes? Well, just watch for yourselves. I mean, people don't have to believe me. I'm old and past it. But just watch what will happen. Watch for the political appointees to those boards. Watch for increasing cost to dismantle and just the severances that are going to be involved. Watch for the loss of talent going out the front and back doors. And then, of course, depending on the measures you use, watch for the loss of integration that's already been achieved. You talk about, you know, government interference, and it's always been a tricky balance because the government is responsible for the delivery of health care. We have a health minister. We have Alberta Health. I, I think at times maybe the government's like to take credit for things that go well and maybe to blame AHS when, when things don't go well. But what, what should the role of government be when it comes to the delivery of health care? Well, let me acknowledge the way that you started the question. There's no question that government has the uh, oversight uh, and responsibility uh, for uh, health care in any given province. And it designates a board uh, and a delivery system or delivery systems uh, to do so. So I don't believe there's anything uh, that doubts that. Uh, we elect governments and we expect governments to to follow through. But explain to me how over 15-year period that HS has struggled to become a real organization. It twice, twice. Governments have, and this government has, disbanded the board. 
A year ago, the board was fired, and there was virtually no real reason given for it and replaced by a official administrator. That has happened twice, and the same official administrator has been put in place twice. That's called flagrant government interference in the system and without cause. And I think they should be accountable for that. What would your advice have been to the government to to take a different approach then? If if we want to improve the delivery of health care and improve AHS, you know, clearly you believe this was not the way to go, but what would you have rather seen? Well, I would have preserved the basic idea behind AHS as a single governance and delivery system for the province. But I think necessarily so. We needed to strengthen the voice of the five zones, uh, which I think basically were not heard to the fullest extent that they should have been. I really believe that we needed to have a very appropriate approach to First Nations health care that was incorporated within AHS and probably was not. Um, and several other things of, of that. Where I, I do think that the current announcement where they are singling out uh, addictions and mental health um, does deserve some credit. Um, but that could have only been done inside of AHS. So mm-hmm. I would have taken AHS's structure and I would have reformed and refreshed it to make it uh, more relevant to today. And I would have included primary and community care, which was never included before. The announcements we heard about primary care today are not going anywhere because it doesn't include the doctors, and it never, ever has. We'll see how this all plays out from here. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Noseworthy, appreciate your insights on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for your time. Okay, there you go, Dr. Tom Noseworthy, Professor Emeritus Community Health Sciences at the University of Calgary. Believes that uh, breaking up AHS, decentralizing all of this is a big mistake. So, was the creation of AHS, was that a mistake in the first place? Or did things just not go well? Like, could this model have worked and it didn't because of poor decision making? Or was this doomed from the outset? And what makes this different? Ultimately, you know, the proof is going to be in in the pudding here, as they say. Either this works or it doesn't. Either we get better bang for the buck or we don't. Welcome back. Well, healthcare may not be the only overhaul uh, we're going to get soon here from the Alberta government. Electricity might be uh, another area. Now, there's been a lot going on on this front, uh, including, of course, looking ahead to the uh, federal clean electricity regulations. The provincial government here has been running ads, tell the feds uh, that, you know, we're, we're not happy about these proposed changes and how expensive they could make electricity in Alberta. Problem is, electricity has already been pretty expensive as of late in Alberta. Something not lost on the premier. Uh, The speech from the throne kicking off the fall session of the legislature uh, made reference to some potential changes coming to the electricity market. Uh, That reforms will ensure ample natural gas generated electricity is brought onto the grid to ensure prices are pushed down and the lights always stay on. To ensure our electricity market is free from market manipulation and that ratepayers are not left with unaffordable electricity rates under what is now inappropriately termed the regulated rate option. So it's unclear what these changes might look like. But uh, in in comments elsewhere, the premier has talked about maybe the need for some changes. Now, amid all of that, there is some new natural gas capacity set to come online in the coming months. 
But there's also going to be some increased concentration. Uh, Transalta is going to be purchasing Heartland Generation for $658 million. It's a big shakeup in the industry, as mentioned, some additional concentration. So where's all of this going? Well, someone who's keeping a close eye on all of this is Blake Schaefer, assistant professor of economics at the University of Calgary, uh, with a lot of his work focused on electricity markets, climate policy, energy transitions. Blake, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. In terms of what changes might be coming, what you've been hearing lately from the premier with the throne speech touched on, what, what do you read into all of that, first of all? Yeah, I mean, you touched on a, a, a few of them. And I guess my first comment is it's not too often that electricity takes up a central place in a throne speech. Right. It sort of tells you just how important it is and how much change is going on. There's a few things referenced. So one was that issue with affordability and, and the regulated rate option. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that uh, it, it's, it's regulated in the sense that the regulator approves it every month. Uh, I think most people here regulated and they think it's a very stable rate, but it's the one that's moving monthly. Um, and, it, and it's been very volatile for the last two years. So I, I expect we're going to see some changes related to that. I don't know if it'll simply be lip service in the sense of changing the name of it. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be appropriate, <laughs> but that doesn't do much. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what we see. Um, but at a deeper level, there there is an accelerated market design conversation now happening with, with the grid operator, the ASO, required to make recommendations to the government early in the new year on potential changes to how the power market is run here in Alberta. Um, the grid operator had started that process. I think they intended it to be a, a rather lengthy one, but the, the government's asked for an acceleration of that and recommendations early in the new year. So that's going to that's going to create some waves. That'll, that'll make some big changes, uh, more so on the generation side, the wholesale side, but obviously that flows through to consumers. Yeah, I mean, Alberta's had this market system in place for, for a number of years now. So, you know, that, that, that whole concept uh, that, that underlies that system, that might be changing then based on what we've been hearing. Potentially, uh, potentially. I mean, it could be modifications to it. Um, like you said, we, we started with this market construct in around the year 2000. And it's had its ups and downs. There's been volatile moments. But, yeah. you know, if you take a sort of a longer term perspective, it's, it's worked reasonably well. Prices get high sometimes and then they get low. Um, and we've had new generation come on, get, get built by private investors taking the risk. And on average, our prices are moderate. Uh, certainly right now, that, that <laughs> what I just said is not going to ring true for many people. They're probably throwing stuff at the radio. Um, <laughs> but we're, we are set to see a, a period of declining prices or, or really lower prices as early as uh, April of next year. That, though, as you mentioned, has been thrown into question with this recently announced takeover uh, by Transalta of the third largest generator, Heartland, which places more concentration of ownership into the hands of one generator. That's been the problem for the last three years. That's really been the issue is too much market concentration that was set to change as we have three large new gas plants coming on this year, two of them owned by different people outside of the big generators. Now that we're having this new concentration, that raises questions again around whether or not prices will fall. Well, that, yeah, and so that that's a big point here. Now, um, these are two major players, right? So, I mean, there 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 aren't many to begin with, and and so when you've got one kind of rolling into the other, what's the impact of that? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, Heartland, just for people know, 
uh, Heartland is a private equity company that bought the ATCO assets about five or six years ago. So they bought the ATCO generation assets. ATCO still participates in the power market, but very limited on the generation side. They're more of a wires company there at the moment. <coughs> Heartland bought their generators. So we're now combining the you know, first and third uh, players together. And in our market, you're allowed to offer whatever price you want. Um, and the only discipline on that is if you offer too high, you might not get dispatched. Other firms will generate power in front of you if you're mm-hmm. asking too much for your product. When you have too much control in the hands of one entity, that you run the risk of they can simply say, this is the price, come and get it. Now, I should point out, Transalta is under the limits that are prescribed by our market surveillance watchdog. So there's a 30% of the market limit. But, but I've advocated for a while now, and I continue to say this, that I think that rule is outdated because that's 30% of all capacity, which includes wind and solar, which really isn't used to exercise market power. And when more than that, 100 megawatts of solar isn't always 100 megawatts of capability, as we know. Yeah. And so I, I think that number, basically the denominator in that number has been inflated with all these renewables. And then, and what you really need to look at is share of dispatchable capacity in terms of who can exercise market power. Okay, so back to these two new gas plants then, because the, these were plants that were not owned by the big three, correct? Yeah, two two of the three. So one is just coming online right now. It's actually starting to commission. It's called Cascades. It's a combined cycle plant, and there's, there's two units, 450 megawatts each, so 900 megawatts. That would be our our largest facility. Um, you have Genesee, which is a repowering of an old coal plant into a modern natural gas combined cycle. That's owned by Capital Power, and they're the number two generator. That doesn't really help on market concentration too much, but it will help with more supply. And then the third one is the Suncor base plant. This is a cogeneration plant in the oil sands, and it's about 800 megawatts. Um, and Suncor is maybe fifth or sixth uh, down the line in terms of uh, large players and significantly lower than, than Capital Power, Transalta, and, and Heartland Generation. And, and NMAX would be in the top three or four as well. Okay. And so it, it creates uncertainty for them then, or what's, what's the impact of this deal potentially? I think the impact of this deal, first of all, if it sort of goes ahead with no changes to market design, it does increase market concentration. It raises the risk of higher prices. Mm-hmm. So the forecast that you know myself and others have been saying it looks like prices are going to be falling in the new year, that, that's cast into a bit of question. I, I think we still will see a declining price just because of new supply, but the, the increased concentration raises some risk that prices won't fall as expected. Okay, so we'll still have that added capacity. It's just factors elsewhere that could put upward pressure on prices. Absolutely. I mean, it's more supply. More supply should push down price. But if all the supply is held in the hands of one entity, it doesn't necessarily do that if they can exercise market power. So it's kind of a trade-off between those two, and and we'll have to see how system conditions play out to see which one wins there. I I think the bigger thing it does is it it really raises the importance of the market design conversation to talk about... How do we deal with what is really a tightly concentrated market? We only have a few players that are big players here and a large fringe. And that's a tough market to deal with, uh, the, the issues of market power, especially with electricity, where demand is typically pretty inflexible. You or I, we're not looking at our prices at any given hour, and we don't even actually even face hourly prices as residential consumers. 
And we have inflexible demand and you have market power on the supply side. That's a recipe for a problem. Um, market design rules can deal with that. And I think we need to take a closer look at it. We'll see how it all plays out in the months ahead. Blake, appreciate the insight. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. You bet. Take care. All the best. Uh, there you go. So Blake Schaefer, uh, economist at the University of Calgary, uh, focusing on electricity markets uh, and other related issues. So a few things to keep a watch on there, that we are getting some new natural gas capacity coming online. So that will help alleviate some of the increases in electricity prices we've seen recently. But at the same time, though, having further concentration in a system where there are fewer players to begin with, uh, that could mitigate some of those potential savings. And then lurking over all of that are, you know, potential changes to the structure of the market coming from the government, you know, the implications of the moratorium on renewables and what the impact of that could be and uh, all of that moving forward. So uh, that's where things stand right now. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.